0: I don't know how I'm going to preach after that, but I'm going to (laughs) try. Turn, if you would, to Ezra chapter 8. Ezra chapter 8, beginning in verse 15. And it is so good to see Miss Betty here with us this morning. God bless you. Great to see Miss Pat with us this morning. I can't see past about that right there. I can't see anything else, but it's great to see you here with us this morning. Amen. Amen. Ezra chapter 8, we're discussing and going through Ezra uh, restore, restoration after the pandemic. Uh, and uh, b- b- things are beginning to look good. Think, you know, uh, uh, if y'all behave, uh, I don't want to tell y'all this, but we had a barbecue at my house Thursday night. And there were more than four or five there. Uh, so we got a head start on some of y'all. But if, if you'll behave by July 4th, you're going to get a barbecue. And... Uh, <laughs> We're, we're excited about that amen a lot of folks have been vaccinated and, and people are coming back over at mason creek we had several uh that were back today we're excited about that several here this morning we're excited about that and and uh, i'm not poking fun i just want to it's better to laugh than to cry amen uh ezra chapter eight uh the first six chapters of ezra deal with the work of zerubbabel uh he has gone back and uh the temple had been rebuilt, the wall's been restored, everything's going great, and of course, complacency sets in, they begin to backslide, and uh, some 60 years later now, chapters seven and eight, Ezra gets up a group, the second wave to go back. And then in verses, in chapters eight and uh, seven and eight, that's when he goes back, chapters nine and 10, we'll deal with the reforms that he offers when he does go back, and they have use for us today too. And uh, hopefully, God willing, we'll be through with Ezra on Palm Sunday and we'll be ready for Resurrection Sunday, the first Sunday of April. Hopefully, everything will work out. I want to remind you, all through this, we've we've said it week after week, God is more interested in building people than he is in building buildings. Buildings are used to, to reach people. People are the important thing for God. And God does not hold us responsible for what we cannot do. But I want to tell you, God delights when we do what he's called us to do. And in this world that we're living in today, there's a lot of confusion of what the New Testament church ought to be doing. There are people that think, well, we need the New Testament church. Listen to me. We're not servants of the government. We're a conscience of the government. We ought to be a conscience. We ought to be teaching the word of God, and we ought to be praying that our country follows in the footsteps of the word of God. And we ought to preach and do everything we can to make sure that does happen. Amen? Good to see Miss Carolyn, too. I just saw the light flick on. Amen? Oh, yeah. We ought to do everything we can. Ezra. I'm going to get in Ezekiel until I've been studying Ezekiel. Boy, that's exciting. Ezra, chapter 8, verse 15. Would you stand, please, in honor of God's holy, inspired, inerrant, all-sufficient word. And I gathered them together to the river that runneth to ah- Ahava. And there abode we in tents three days. And I viewed the people and the priests and found there were none of the sons of Levi. And then look down at verse 21. Then I proclaimed a fast there at the river of ah- Ahava that we might afflict ourselves before our God to seek of him a right way for us and for our little ones and for all our substance." For I was ashamed to require of the king a band of soldiers and horsemen to help us against the enemy in the way because we had spoken unto the king saying, the hand of our God is upon all them for good that seek him but his power and his wrath is against all them that forsake him. So we fasted and besought our God for this and he was entreated of us. Let's pray. Father, thank you again today for allowing us to come and gather in your presence. Lord, we'd ask you to manifest yourself in this place today. And not only in this place, but through the power of the Holy Spirit, would you flow through these airwaves and come into living rooms and computers and televisions as people are watching all over this country and even parts of the world. God, let your Holy Spirit deal with every one of us. Not a one of us are exempt from needing you this morning. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for paying it all. And oh, Lord God, help us be willing to give back all. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you. You may be seated. I see here, first of all, that there is an assembly at the river. They're gathering at the Ahava River. It was a meeting place. It was a very familiar place. It would be like if I were to say, we're going to meet uh, this afternoon at the Sabine River at Whiskey Bend, you would know exactly where to go. At the river bridge, at Whiskey Bend, you would know where to go. So they're saying, we're going to meet at Ahava River. They knew exactly where to go. But it's also not just a meeting place. It's a place where the action's fixing to take place. It's a place where they're fixing to get off dead center, uh, where they're fixing to, to move on for the glory of God. Now, he does this in several ways. First of all, he gets the people on board with the work. The first fourteen verses deal with the names of the people that are going in the second way. You'll thank the Lord that I didn't read all of those names. You can read them when you get home this afternoon, but they're very important. It's important that uh, Ezra put those names there because he's holding those people accountable. It's important that we be, we be held accountable. Uh, uh, Ezra took the time to tell us that all of these genealogical records and everything so that they could be verified. Now, listen to me closely. The only way in this modern day that a church can fight the attacks and the waves that are coming at us uh, from the world and from the perversions and from Satan himself, we've got to open ourselves up to inspection. I know some folk get upset when you say, we're going to have a background check. If if you've got something in your background, you don't want us to know it, don't don't volunteer to teach children. Because I'm just telling you right now, we love our children. We want to protect our children and our young people. And I'll be honest with you, I want to protect our old people. There's some con artists out here in this world today. We need to protect our older people from that too. I'm not saying that you shouldn't have any privacy. What I'm saying is that my sin and your sin affects this whole congregation. We're members of Woodland Hills Baptist Church. We're part of the family of God. We're part of the kingdom of God, and we need to hold each other accountable. And there's no other way to do it other than to inspect each other. What what I'm saying here is ministry is a team spirit. It's a team sport. We're in this thing together. You 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 think one's more important than the other? You're wrong. Mm -mm. We're all in this together. Every one of us. Lieutenant Hiro Onoda was the last Japanese soldier to surrender after World War II. They left him and three other guys on the islands in the Philippines. Told him to carry on. The three other guys had died. He refused to surrender. He surrendered finally. I mean, they dropped pamphlets in the jungle. They, they had speakers. They tried to come. He would not come up. He wouldn't give up. They hunted him. They spent millions of dollars looking for him. And finally, in 1974, he surrendered. From 1944 to, or 45, the war ended to 1974. He killed 30 Filipino nationals during that time. And finally, he surrenders. And you know what he said? 52 years old, he made this comment when he got back to Japan. There was nothing pleasant during those 29 years in the jungle. Well, I bet that's an understatement of the year. <laughs> Let me tell you, if we're not careful, we'll find ourselves arguing over junk that is unpleasant, that is ridiculous. 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 He got the people. I love that song. We're one in the Spirit. We're going to walk in unity. We're one in love. Hey, he got the people together there. But not only did he get the people together and get them on board with the task, he got the right people. You see, Ezra knew who he wanted, but that's not always who volunteers. (laughs) You'll see in our bulletin today, we need help at Mason Creek. I wanna tell you, if, if you know, my staff knows this, I tell them all the time, don't ask for volunteers. You, you pick out, you pray and you pick out who because sometimes people volunteer ain't got no business volunteering. Amen? Man, I heard some people that wanted to sing that couldn't carry a tune in a bucket. If you can't sing, don't volunteer to sing, amen? Volunteer to open the door or drive a golf cart or or welcome people or smile or just look good like Donnie does. I mean, just look there. Do something. Uh, He was disappointed that the right guys didn't seem to step up and volunteer. Now, I want to tell you, these exiles are having to do some things that they really shouldn't have had to do. And you know why they're having to do them? Because their mamas and daddies before, and their grandmamas and grandpapas before, didn't do them. And folks, I want to challenge us as a church. Let's don't leave this church in our generation to our grandchildren and our children uh, ahead of us here in a mess. Man, let let's challenge. This is the challenge. This is the time to take up the challenge. I don't want my children to have to be doing things that I ought to have done myself. Uh, When they got the first decree from Cyrus that you could go back to Jerusalem, it wasn't a mandate. They didn't have to go. And the truth is, a lot of people that should have went didn't go. Now, why didn't they go? Well, It's evident in the scripture here uh, that they put family over obedience. Mm. They had intermarried. They had grandsons that were Babylonians. They had daughter-in-laws and son-in-laws that were Babylonians. Let Let me tell you something, daddies. Listen to me. You'll never bless your family more than prioritizing God in your life. Now, you may say, well, my family comes first. Well, you're wrong, buddy. God ought to come first, first and foremost. God loves your family more than you do. And I'm telling you, when you make the priority to put God at the center of everything you do, it will be a blessing. God is never going to hurt your family. It will be a blessing to your family. And then some of them put family over obedience. Some of them put finances over obedience. They were in Babylon, but they weren't under house arrest. They were able to move about, and they were able to start businesses, and they started baking bread and cupcakes and wedding cakes and all that stuff. And they had their 401Ks set up, and and all of their finances were coming in. And they're saying, Ezra, you want me to give up everything I got here? They don't even have a, a, a pension plan down there in Jerusalem. You want me to give all that up? So some people put finances over obedience. Still happens today. I hear young daddies, and I just shake my head. I, you know, well, I'm working overtime, and overtime's good. That's wonderful. But sometimes, some of you, you to tell the truth, you're working overtime because you just love money more than you love your family you sit here and tell me you're doing it for your family, but I tell you, your family needs you at home. I'm not talking about all over time. Do all you can because that helps the ties. But I'm just telling you, <laughs> there ought to be a time when you say, Look, enough's enough. Man, I got to spend some time with my family. And then some of them put faith over obedience. They had intermarried and intermingled, and they had begun to worship some of the gods of. Babylon. You see, the devil's not going to come in here and say, I tell you what, y'all denounce God. Because some of you, bless God, got enough fortitude to stand up and say, I'm not going to do it. I'm not going to do it. So you know what he does? He said, not knocking your God, keep your God. He's good. He's good. But tolerate this over here. Go ahead and add this God. I mean, it won't hurt nothing. You still got your God, but just go ahead and add this God. And before long, we got 1,500 gods over here. And I want to tell you, my God says I'm jealous and I won't have any other God before me. That's what he says. So it's faith over obedience through many dangers, toils, and snares. I have already come. Tis grace has brought me safe thus far and grace will lead me on. Listen, I'm not going to lie to you. The cost to obedience is great. It'll cost you something to be obedient. But the cost of disobedience is even greater. It's greater. Now, there also here is a time of commitment. There comes a time when talk is cheap. Comes a time when you need to quit talking. When you need to quit planning. I can take you to churches around our state that I'm familiar with that literally have spent Hundreds upon hundreds upon hundreds of thousands of dollars. I'm thinking of four or five of them right now that started when we built this building, when we started this building and they got new plans and they got new plans and hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of thousands of dollars and they still hadn't turned the first shovel of dirt. There comes a time when it's time to quit playing and quit talking and say, no more planning. We're going to move on. It's a time of commitment. Shut the house down, lock the windows up, move on. We'll pray about how to do it, but we ain't going to pray about whether to do it or not. See, that's the biggest thing in my 50 years, Brother Dale, is Baptist. Count the cost. Count the cost. It's like Gomer Powell. Count the cost. Count the cost. Citizens arrest. Citizens arrest. Count the cost. Now, let me tell you, You count the cost before you get saved. Once you get saved, you belong to the Lord, and if he tells you to do it, it don't matter what it costs. I mean, if you're sold out to him, it doesn't matter what it costs. You count all of that before you ever get in line with the Lord. There's a time of commitment. You see, he wants to restore temple worship, and everybody knows you've got to have priests and Levites to restore temple worship. And yet the scripture says here in verse 15, I viewed the people and the priests and found none. Not a few. He found none. So what does he do? Well, I guess it's God's will that we don't go back. I guess we just need to pray about it a little bit more and wait a few more years. Let a few more folk die and go to hell before we ever try to do anything to reach them. Just, the people just not here. No, uh-uh, no, we don't have time. He called a messenger. And I want to tell you, let me put it in East Texas for you so you learn to stand it really quick. Uh, the, 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 to restore the temple needed priests and Levites and they were all AWOL. The people who needed to step up to the plate were still sitting in the dugout. And so he calls a messenger and he said, hey, you go over to the house of the Levites and you tell them they better get their place in order and get over here and volunteer like they're supposed to. And I think he probably added this, you better not make me have to come over there. (laughs) Mm. He didn't lay down. He wasn't apathetic. He boldly proclaimed for leaders to step up. Here they are gathered at the river Boy, today we hear, uh, I hear it all the time. My family is dysfunctional. Well, today's a great day to step up to the plate, sir. My family may have been in and they may have been out and they may have been on and they may have been off, and, but I want to tell you, it stops right now. I'm going to start from this point on. We're going to follow the Lord. I'm going to be committed to the Lord. Somebody needs to step up and do that with their family. This following story—it's a little long, but stay with me. It's good. It's a—he's—it's—it's it's a young boy that's 12 years old. He said, "I can't ex- describe the excitement I felt that day." Brother Whaley, pastor of First Baptist Church, Memphis, Texas, was in Texline, Texas, leading a revival, and uh, John R. Rice was leading the music. I didn't even know John R. Rice could sing. But he was leading the music. He started out as a music director. And Pastor Whaley, when he got through preaching the first sermon, he said, I'm going to invite every one of you who feels called to full-time service to come down this aisle. Brother Whaley, give your life to God right here, right now. The music played, the people sang, and suddenly I was moving out into the aisle, walking down to the platform, standing directly in front of John R. Rice and Pastor Whaley as I stood there alone at the end of that sawdust trail that morning, what happened next was disappointing to say the least. No one even looked in my direction. Brother Whaley had jumped down off the platform and was rushing to embrace another man on the other side of the tent. It was his brother who had responded to the invitation. He was a hard dirt farmer lived in New Mexico, not many miles from Texline, Line. And he said this, all my life I've run from God's call, tears streaming down his face, but today I'm going to quit running. He said, I stood near the platform alone, feeling really quite awkward. I was only 12 years old. The Elder Whaley must have been close to 70, maybe 80. He was thin and... Haggard his skin was wrinkled and burned from the years of following the plow beneath the open sky He walked up there with a severe limp his arms in his hands. They trembled And the next Sunday morning Everybody gathered to hear the preacher's brother elder Whaley preach his first and last sermon He stood before us creaky rheumatic his voice was weak His body was bent over. You couldn't hear him pass the first row. Everybody was straining to listen. It was moving, and yet at the same time, it was tragic. This young 12-year-old said it was a lesson that I will never forget. If you're going to serve the Lord, you better do it now. Don't wait another day. Don't wait or you'll end up like that poor old farmer looking back on what might have been but never could be. That was written by a 12-year-old boy named W.A. Criswell, who later became pastor at First Baptist Dallas for 47 years. Thousands of people saved under his ministry. Listen, today's the day, Daddy. Today's the day, Mama, where you say, look, we're going to get committed today. Tired of talking. Lock up the windows. We're going to let it out. Now, listen to what's happening. This is going to date me, but used to be an old uh, Western called Wagon Train. Whoa! You remember it? Huh? Y'all remember that? So, you young people, go home and look it up. Google it. Google something good, all right? That's not what Ezra did. Ezra throws up both hands. He don't say, "Wagon you know, oh," he says, "Stop! Everybody, get out of your wagon. Tie your horses up. We're not moving one foot until we get before the face of God. We're not moving an inch. You see, and he he prays here three different things, and it's right here in Scripture. Number one, he prayed for the guidance of God. You see, there were many ways to go from Babylon to Jerusalem. It's a 1,000 miles. It takes four months. There's many ways to go from here to Dallas. You can go I-20. You can go Highway 80. You can go 154. You can go 31. There's any number of ways to go. What they're saying is, Lord, guide us. This is a dangerous trip. We need your help. We are dependent on you. We're not headed out on our own. We used to sing those old songs. Guide me, O thou great Jehovah, through this barren pilgrim land. I'm weak, but thou art mighty. Hold me with thy powerful hand. Savior, like a shepherd, lead us. Much we need thy tender care. He leadeth me, O blessed thought. O words with heavenly comfort for all. Whatever I do, wherever I be, still tis God's hand that leadeth me. They prayed for guidance. But they not only prayed for guidance, they prayed for protection of God. They have raised, and we'll talk about that a little bit later maybe, 25 tons of silver worth probably, I don't know, it rough estimates, $300 million in our day. 6,000 tons of gold. They've raised this stuff. The king gave some of it, and this is a blue-collar group of people. They've come in and raised all this stuff. They've got silver. They've got gold. They've got women and children and all of this. And they're saying, Lord, look, look at verse 31, the very last sentence of verse 31. And he delivered us from the hand of the enemy and of such as lay in wait by the way. He's saying there are ambushes all along the way and they're saying, oh God, we need your protection. Listen to me, daddies and mamas, don't let a day pass that you don't pray, God, build a hedge of protection around my children and my grandchildren and my great-grandchildren. We need God's protection. You can't be with them all the time, but God can. Any time You start to do something for God. The devil will assign a demon to your address. Go ahead and mark it down. You say, well, my family, we're going to quit being dysfunctional. We're going to serve the Lord. Well, you've got a demon. He's headed over to your house. He'll be there by dinner. There's never been a time in my 50 years of ministry where families are more under attack than they are right now. Never, never. Husbands and wives wore out, distressed, selfish. My soul, I want to spit sometimes. I want. Don't you think, preacher? I deserve. I want, I don't think you deserve nothing. Good gracious! Rebellious teenagers. And and we, God love us in America. Only could our people come up with the fact that Dr. Seuss is a big problem. I mean, we, got, we we got teenagers that are listening to rap lyrics that your mama and my mama would have cut our head off. We've got kids that are playing video games of murder and, and, and gunshots and horrific violence. But Dr. Seuss is our problem. The abortion, the immorality, the sexual perversion, the materialism, I, it's rampant. You see, sometimes the biggest failure we can get is to succeed. And we get wrapped up. i, I got to hurry on. He, he also prayed for the glory of God. I love this. I think probably, Brother Aaron, it was a business meeting. You Baptists love business meetings. And I think somebody stood up and said, well, I'll tell you what, I'd like to make a motion. King Artaxas has already said that he'll give us anything we want. So I make a motion that we go back to the king and tell him we need the National Guard to come over here and escort us up to Jerusalem. Now, doesn't that sound sensible? I mean, you're talking 25 tons of silver, six tons of gold, People laid in ambush. Don't you think it would be worth an army escort to go from Babylon? Uh, Sure. You know what Ezra said? Ezra said, I'd be ashamed to go back there and ask the king. Well, why, Ezra? Well, the last time I was with the king, I told him, my God's hand is on us. I told him that those who were serving God, God's hand was on them. He's protecting us. And those who are against God, his wrath is on them. And I'd be ashamed to go back there and tell him, now, we need some kind of military escort. (laughs) I'd rather die on the road to Jerusalem. That's what he's saying. We're seeing so much of this today with preachers and evangelists that sin brings discredit. I Nailed here this week. And I prayed, and I'm not blowing smoke. I prayed honestly God, in your sovereignty, if you see where I'm going to embarrass my family, my kids, my church, my Savior, take me out of the way. Get me out of here. I don't want to do anything. I don't want to do anything. That's what Ezra's saying. I'm willing to die. I'm willing to die for the glory of God. Now, let me tell you what that does. (laughs) It frees you. See, when you're willing to die for the glory of God and somebody preaches against playing a ball game on Sunday, that ain't no big deal. You've already said you'd die for Jesus. What's giving up a ball game? Hmm? I'm just telling you now, you, you, you tell me whatever you want to, and I'm not telling you what to do. I'm just telling you in the years ahead, you're going to find out what your children know you're dedicated to is what they're going to end up being dedicated to. See, if, if, if you're willing to die for God, then giving up some sinful relationship that you got, you say, well, preacher, we're not doing anything except texting. Oh, well, yeah, okay. You know, please don't act that ignorant. I mean, if you're already willing to die, what's giving up a sinful relationship? You mean, preacher, that I need to quit posting my drama on Facebook? Well, you've already said you'd die for Jesus. What's that giving up Facebook for? You're going to die for Jesus. And then let's get into the church. (laughs) You're going to have to park a little farther. More people. Now, we're going to try to get the golf carts up and running, and we're going to have them uh, geared up and everything, but you're going to have to park a little. But hey, what's the deal with parking a little farther? You've already said you'd die for Jesus. Here's a big one. I'm coming home, Elizabeth. (laughs) Elizabeth. You want my class to move? from room A to room B? Because we've only got four in here and this room will hold 30 and they've got 25 in here and it'll hold 10? Well, you know what? You're not asking me to give up the ghost. I've already said I'd die for Jesus. What's moving a room for? Huh? (laughs) Well, We'll discover something. You can't lay down your rights and fight for them at the same time. December, 1666. Hugh McHale was a young, gallant, Protestant reformer in Scotland. He was brought to trial in Edinburgh. He was sentenced to death in four days people were weeping in the streets such a young man so full of vigor and life would be put to death he got 4 days to see the sunshine and that's it they're taking him from the trial back to the jail he's walking people are weeping they're praying he's got two words he says the whole trial the whole walk trust god trust god it's terrible that you're going to die. Trust God. And then as he's walking, he sees a friend, <laughs> a dear friend of his, standing on the edge of the crowd. And he looks over at him and he shouts to him, good news, good news. In four days, I'm going to be enjoying the sight of my Jesus. In four days. Let me close. We need to learn from their generosity. Generosity. Verses 24 through 26 tell us that. We won't have time to read it. Could I tell you that Jesus counts money different than the money tellers do? We got some money counters here and they do a great job, but our Lord counts money different. You remember the instance where people were bringing by the big checks and they had the, the bills with Andrew Jackson and Abraham. I don't know who all those big guys are on their bills. Them hundred-dollar bills and all and, and all. And then here comes a little old lady with plump, plump. And Jesus says, She gave more than all of these. Wow. He counts money different than the tellers do. <laughs> they gave with generosity. They gave with purpose. Now, what would cause a group of people? And I'm talking, I know I've talked to the saints. God love you. In these last uh, Year and a half, you've given over a million dollars to wipe out the children's building's debt. We're down to under $770,000 now from $2.5 million. You've done that. And I know uh, some of you, uh, uh, some of you people have, older people and younger people have taken out loans to make that possible so you pay the interest of it so that the God could be glorified in this place. I know that. What makes a people look and want to be generous? What makes a blue-collar church say, hey, it's worth it? I think if we can find out what, did, what they did in Ezra's day, it'll motivate us the same way. I believe as they gathered there at the Ahava River, <laughs> I think they could look past the present to see the future. I think they looked across that river, and I think they looked through the desert sands. I think maybe they looked behind the veil, and they could see the blood of, of, of rams and lambs and sacrifices. And I know that doesn't take away our sin, but that's a prelude to the real sacrificial lamb who takes away the sins of the world. They saw the blood and they went past their present into their future for the glory of God. (laughs) Would you take a little trip with me? You don't have to exercise. I want us to go out this back door here and we're gonna turn left. A Couple of years ago, you would have just went outside, that was it. Now there's a beautiful foyer all the way down to the end with our children's preschool building. Now I want to tell you, as we walk into that building, you better behave because we've got 37 security cameras. We take security very seriously, so you better behave. We won't have to interrupt any classes because we also have a window in every door so that you can see what's going on. We turn that first thing and there's a little playground area there and there'll be some kids there probably. They take turns and they love that area. And then we go on down that first wall and we look in that door and there's Rosie with a group of little preschoolers this morning. And they're singing, Oh, be careful little eyes, what you see. (laughs) And they, they... hey those are my old courses they're singing new courses too they got good good uh, songs today and then we come back and we go down and and, and, and we go down the nursery hall, and over to the right is the bed babies, and over to the left is the three- and four-year-olds, and we go down to the first and second graders, and you're hearing teachings about, for God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten son, who so in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. They're, they're in there ministering and everything, and people are teaching them the word of God. And then you come back up, and you go upstairs. You go to the top of that stairs and turn right, into what's the children's worship area. Looks like Bedlam. That's because it is. But you go down that hall and there'll be first and second grade classes there. They're teaching them scriptures and they're calling the kids by name. And then you get over to the third and fourth grade and they're a little more complicated learning scripture and they're teaching them the word of God. And then you cross around and you get over to what we call Bridge 56. The fifth and sixth graders. There were 40 fifth and sixth graders in the bridge on Wednesday night. Probably one of the most ages that we need to be teaching straight to more than any other age in this church, fifth and sixth graders. Then, of course, you do on Wednesday night, you'll find out in the Grand Hall some men and women have come early and they've cooked some good food and it 's smoking back there, and man, it looks good, and ice cream and all of the desserts and all that and then some other men and women have come early, and they 've got some on, some old war out yellow dog blue gray white looking buses and they 've gone out and they 've picked kids up and and they 're standing, and I want to tell you the kids are standing there whether it 's raining or whether it 's not raining. They get on the bus and they come and and, and in the youth ministry and the children's ministry and all of the laughter and all of this stuff. Let, let, me, let me ask you something. I, I ain't even talked about uh, the things like Hilltoppers and Bible studies and kids' praise and missions and youth and college and Shamgar and CR and ministry at Mason Creek. Who would not want to be a part of something like that? Who would not want to be a part? Hmm. 1864, the summer, distressing year. The Civil War was on, probably one of the most distressful years in the Civil War. A lot of people lost their lives. A Baptist preacher named Robert Lowry wanted to write a poem that would encourage restoration and renewal. He went to Revelation chapter 22. And he showed me a pure river of water of life, clear as crystal, proceeding out of the throne of God and of the Lamb. In the midst of the street of it and on either side of the river, there was the tree of life, which bare twelve manner of fruits and yielded her fruit every month. And the leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. And then he sat down and he wrote, penned these words. Shall we gather at the river where bright angel feet have trod? With its crystal tide forever flowing by the throne of God. Soon we'll reach the shining river. Soon our pilgrimage will cease. Soon our happy hearts will quiver with a melody of peace. And then he answered his question. Yes, we'll gather at the river, the beautiful, the beautiful river. Gather with the saints at the river that flows by the throne. I submit to you this morning. It's time some of us gather at the river. Say, Lord, we want more. We want to get over this pandemic. We want to reach people for Jesus. We want to leave this church in tip-top shape for the next generation. We want to see the glory of God fall again on this place. Father, Lord, would you have your way in this place today? God, thank you for your love and mercy. Thank you for everything you've done for us. What you're going to do for us in the future. We praise you and we thank you for it. Now, Lord, I'm asking you right now, would you touch lives? There are those in this congregation right now that need to be saved. They're not going to gather at the river. They may gather there, but they're never going to cross the river because they've never trusted you, never had a relationship with you. But today, today, the Holy Spirit of God's calling. They're going to be saved. Others need to unite with this church by letter or by statement or by baptism. Lord, would you have your way in every life that's not only in this building, but that's also listening by live stream? God, we praise you. You're the one we praise in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you stand?